0: Well, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 65, and we are going to fast forward a little bit from where we were last week in Psalm 60. Psalm 61 through 64 are a recurring, very common theme with David, who is struggling to be free from his enemies and the feelings of aloneness, the danger around him, and so fast forwarding to Psalm 65, and I've titled this very simply, Our God to be praised, and it's a very simple psalm, but it contains within it, I think, some things that will be very profitable for us in our walk with God. So Psalm 65, unlike Psalm 60, does not have a very specific historical context attached to it. There's nothing in the title that that would identify a particular period in time where David or the psalmist would have written this. But the content of the psalm gives us a few subtle clues about the likely purpose that a psalm like this was written and was celebrated by the nation of Israel. We see this most specifically in verses 9 through 13. And most believe that this was probably related to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the longest and the most celebrative of the three national feasts that God had ordained for the nation of Israel to observe. And this feast took place after the crops had been harvested and there was a great celebration amongst God's people of his goodness to them through the harvest that they had just enjoyed. So the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as it is also called, is prescribed in both the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers. Here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 23. It says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with the rest on the first and a rest on the eighth day. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths. When I brought them out from the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So that's why it's called the Feast of Booths. And this is why it was celebrated annually as a remembrance of what God had done for them. But it was also a way for them to celebrate in the here and now and in an ongoing looking forward to God's faithfulness and goodness to his people Throughout all of time, it is very likely that the psalm was sung at other occasions, but it's most likely that it occurred because of a celebration during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Day of Atonement, which is on the 10th day of the seventh month, just a few days prior to the Feast of Tabernacles, also seems to be included in this psalm, as we see a little bit later in verse 3, that the word forgive, or in the Hebrew, the word atone, is used. And so it is thought that since the Day of Atonement was just a few days earlier, and they are celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles, it is probable that this is the occurrence for the writing of this psalm. So here's what we have to read in the Word of God today in Psalm 65, the entirety, verses 1 through 13. Here's what God's Word says to us today. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me as for our transgressions. You forgive them or you atone for them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house your holy temple by awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness o god of our salvation you who are the who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea who establishes the mountains by his strength being girded with might who stills the roaring of the seas the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in all of your signs You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty. And your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. So the content that we have here is going to be divided amongst three major sections verses 1 through 4, 5 to 8, and 9 through 13. And the first part of our outline today is our God of grace. Our God to be praised is our God of grace. Now, a psalm that focuses on a national Jewish festival might easily become narrowly described as being nationalistic. That is, the praise of the God of Israel alone. For example, when we sing patriotic songs like God Bless America and others... Some narrowly believe that the God we sing to is just the God of America. But that isn't true. He is the God of all. However special the relationship between the nation of Israel and Jehovah God, the God of Israel is nevertheless the God of all other peoples too. And this important balance is presented in the very beginning ...of this psalm in its very opening verses. It says in verse 1 that He is the God of Israel. There will be silence before you... ...and praise and Zion, O God... ...and to you the vow will be performed. So the silence before God... ...is one that is designed to evoke a sense of reverent awe... ...as we come before the Holy One. We come with reverence understanding the great God that he is, the otherness from who we are, and praise is going to come forth from his people in Zion. Now, Zion, of course, is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, where not only this feast was to be held, but it was also where the temple was, And in the olden days, the tabernacle was in the the center of their dwelling place. And the Jewish people believed that God figuratively dwelt among them in the tabernacle or in the temple. So they would say that Jerusalem was the true place of worship for God's people because the Jews were the repository of the truth. Of this one true God. You know every nation. Every people. Has what they believe to be truth. About whatever God they might worship. But the nation of Israel was unique. Because they held the truth about the one true God. He is the only God. And this is the God that they desire to worship. And the central location of worship. For this God. Was in Jerusalem. Because that is where his temple was. So in a world of many gods, Israel worshiped the one true God, and he had chosen Israel as his special people, and the worship of him was centered in Zion or in Jerusalem, and that is where the praise of this one true God was to be centered in. Now there's a reference here to the vow that is to be performed, and it has several possible explanations. One is, it could be related related to a commitment made to God within the Feast of Tabernacles. It could be related to promises that are made to God and hopes of a good harvest in the following year. It could also be related to the praising of God to the God of Israel. But I think it makes most sense to understand this in the context of the psalm in its entirety or the psalm as a whole. I believe it is a vow to be faithful to to this God, the one true God, who is not only the God of Israel, but who is the God of all. They don't worship this unique God of Israel. They worship the God over all of the universe, over all peoples of all nations for all time. Verse 2 says, Oh, you who hear prayer, to you All men come. He is the God who hears the prayers of men, but not just the men of Israel, all men, from all nations and all tribes. And when we have a nationalistic view of God, that He is the God of America alone... We can be surprised to remember and to be reminded that there are people in China. There are people in India. There are people in Russia. There are people in Africa. There are people in South America. There are people all over the world who are praying to the one true God who has chosen the nation of Israel to be his special people. So this God that we understand being presented here is not the God of universalism. It doesn't mean that all people worship some form of a deity, or some form of a little g-god, and somehow that becomes appealing to God, or acceptable by God. So it's not universalism in that sense, but it's a universal God for all of mankind, who has chosen to reveal himself first to the nation of Israel, and then to all through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So regardless of what form of deity or idol man gives his worship to, or that man faithfully follows, there is only one true God, and he is Jehovah. You know, the road of good intentions is a quick way to the gates of hell when we express our religious devotion to something other than this one true God. You can be a faithful, spiritual, religious person and not understand that the gateway to this God, Jehovah, is none other than Jesus himself. And my friend, he will look at you on the day you stand before him, and he will say, I never knew you. Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father, to Jehovah, except... Through me. So the vow is made to the God who is to be praised, the God who hears the prayers of all men, the God of all, the God who forgives. Verse 3 says, Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions, you forgive them or you atone for them. So the psalmist writes with this. Reality of an Overwhelming Sin Problem. And he states it this way, that our iniquity, my iniquity, prevails against me. When something prevails against you, it doesn't mean that it is just against you. It means that it is consistently, that it is intentionally, and that it is very decisively set out to do harm to you, it is pushing and pushing and pushing you. And this is what sin does to us in our sinful condition, is it prevails against us, and here we are introduced to the God who forgives. So how can sinful men and women, both Jew and Gentile alike, who have a sin problem that prevails against them, how is it that these, these individuals can come before a God who is holy and just and perfect in every way? Well, there's only one way, and that is through atonement. Atonement is very simply God providing a sacrifice by which an innocent victim bears the punishment of those who are actually guilty. Atonement is what makes forgiveness possible. Atonement is a covering. Most specifically, atonement is a blood covering. God forgave his people through the atoning sacrifice of innocent animals. Their blood covered over their sins. Now we were introduced to this all the way back in the book of Exodus when God was freeing his people from bondage under the nation of Egypt. And after God had poured out the 10th and final plague on the nation of Egypt and the people were to prepare for their departure, what were they to do? They offered up a sacrifice. They took the blood of that sacrifice and they painted the doorpost. And that painting of blood became a covering over that home. And when the death angel came, he would pass over them. And their sin was covered over by the atoning sacrifice of that animal. Now, as we fast forward to the New Testament... Jesus is the full and final atonement for sin. His blood covers us and provides for us the basis of our forgiveness before God. 1 John 2 2 says this, And he himself is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins, for not only our sins, but also for those of the whole world. So week after week, month after month, year after year, as the Israelites continued to perform the sacrifice of these innocent animals to be the covering for their sin, they did so looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come. And then when the Messiah came, it brought an end to the sacrifice because he himself became our sacrifice, paying our penalty, becoming our guilty sacrifice Before the Lord. So this vow is made to the God of not only Israel, but to the God of all men who hears our prayers, the God who forgives, and also to the God who is merciful. Verse 4 says this How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house your holy temple so not only are we forgiven but god chooses us to dwell with him this verse communicates to us our election his effectual calling our access to the throne of god our acceptance by the holy and righteous god and our adoption to become the sons and the sons and daughters of the most high god Since we cannot come to God on our own, He graciously works in us, allowing us to understand the truth of who He is. He gives us a heart of faith, and He draws us to Him. The covering of Christ's blood, His atoning sacrifice, brings us near to God, and it bridges the chasm between our sin and God's holiness. It makes us acceptable to Him, And it makes us able to live in God's presence as the adopted children of the Most High God. This is the God, the God of mercy, that we make this vow to. The gracious God who hears our prayers, forgives our sin, covers our sin through the atoning sacrifice of His Son... He dwells with us and we dwell with him. And so the question is very simply this. How blessed is the man who has the privilege of experiencing this reality? This man is exceedingly blessed. And this is the man who ought to be making the vow To this great God, this is the God to whom we praise and we trust and we love and we give our lives to because He is our God of grace, our God to be praised. Number two in our outline, we see our God of power. So as we think about this theoretical idea of who God is, that He is a God of grace, that He is a God who hears our prayers, that He is a God who forgives, We need to be reminded that this gracious God is also a God who intervenes with power on behalf of his people. So he answers our prayers. Verse 5, by awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness. O God of our salvation, you who are the trust of all the ends of the earth, of all the farthest sea. So the psalmist affirms that God answers the prayers of his people, and he does so with awesome deeds which are done in righteousness. Now, this most specifically is going to address God's acts of deliverance beginning with the Exodus and continuing all throughout the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. And under David, between the exodus and the reign of David, there were many, many victories. There were many defeats. There were many, many lessons to be learned. Some of these lessons and some of these defeats were the result of rebellion and discipline. And so the psalmist underscores this very simple truth, that God answers the prayers of his people, and he does so righteously. And when God does so righteously, it means he does according to his person, his plans, and his purposes. So God answers our prayers consistent with who he is, with what he designs, and with what he desires for his people. So what we need to be reminded of is this, that God always answers our prayers, sometimes with a yes, Sometimes much to our chagrin with a no. And sometimes much to our disbelief with a wait. You know, we're a very instant people. We want it now. We don't want it in an hour. We want it now. And I think things like technology and airplanes and microwave ovens have made our inability to wait even that much more difficult because waiting is the hardest and the most unwelcomed reality of our journey before the Lord. We hate waiting. Bless her heart, Deb this week had to go for a battery of tests. And you know what? She's got to wait for the results. When we have things in our life that we don't like, we don't want, we'd prefer not to be our reality. We pray and we want God to say, now it's all over with. It's all done away with. But God says yes, God says no, and God says wait according to his will, not our desire, and God always answers according to his righteousness. The psalmist says that he is the God of our salvation, the one who delivers both physically and spiritually, whether it be prayers for an abundant abundant harvest, Or the rescue from difficulty. He is the hope for all people. And they trust him to the ends of the earth. To the farthest of the seas. You know my son. About a year ago. Went on a mission trip to India. And it was an eye opening experience. For him to meet people. All the way on the other side of the world. Who had placed their hope. In the same God that he did. In the little corner of his world. All around the world. All through the work of God and through the work of his chosen people, others have come to know him and to find their hope in him, who is the God of this universe. In a world that is in constant turmoil, God is constantly displaying his power on behalf of his people. They see it and they come to trust in him. You know, I think about when God was trying to free his people from the nation of Egypt and he sent about the ten plagues. I know that there were people who believed in the God who had displayed himself with such overwhelming power. And I would assume that there were people who would have said, why didn't we understand this earlier and spare ourselves from all of this heartache? People all around the world have seen The righteous acts of God as the answer to the prayers of his people and through that they have believed as he has displayed his power. The display of God's power is designed to bring peace to the people of God because it reminds us that he is greater than we often remember. Let me say that again. God's power is is designed to bring peace to God's people because it reminds us that He is greater than we often remember. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that God is greater than we remember? Do you believe that God is greater than we even think and believe? God is the God of the impossible. God has the ability to do things that we can't even think or imagine He would do. And this is the kind of God that loves us, that has covered us, and that righteously answers our prayers. When we feel like it's all about to fall upon us and crush us and we can't bear up under it, God reminds us that he is more powerful than we believe. Now, in this psalm, there are three very simple reminders of the power of God. The first one is God reminds us with the mountains. Now, that seems kind of weird. Verse 6 says, Who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might? Some of the most magnificent visual scenery that we have on this earth is the sight of mountains off in the distance. We might be on a long flat road on the way to Montana or on the way through Colorado, and we look in the distance, and behold, we see these little peaks show up. And the closer we get, the more magnificent and the more humongous these structures become. And we see the snow-tipped tops of these mountains. And the closer we get, the closer we get, the bigger we get, the bigger they get. They tower up into the clouds. They are immense. They are immovable. And they have been set in place by God Himself. Now, if you are an evolutionist, or if you are a non-believing geologist, you might just think that there was some magnificent stuff that happened millions and perhaps even billions of years ago that caused these mountains to push up out of the earth out of nothing. But here the psalmist says that God has put them in their place. Think about this. Mount Everest in the Himalayas is 29,000 feet tall. It is so tall that its peak is actually in the jet stream that moves far above our atmosphere. It takes an average of more than two months to scale its heights and it has recorded numerous deaths. It's brutal below freezing weather. And winds in excess of 175 miles per hour make it incredibly dangerous to to climb. It is the penultimate display of quote-unquote Mother Nature's power. And God in His power has set Mount Everest in its place as a reminder to us of the immense and of the immeasurable power that exists within the person of God. The immense size and immovability of the mountains are reminders to us that God is powerful and he set these things in place through his mighty act of creation. And another subtle reminder, number two, is with the seas. 7a, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waste. As vast and as impressive as, the, as these huge mountains are, The seas are even more so. Have you ever seen one of these mammoth cargo ships that travel across the seas? You can stack thousands, literally thousands of tractor trailers on its deck. And when you look at that, you look at its humongous size. And then when you look at it from a 30,000 foot view, it looks like nothing more than a toy and the immense, vast expanse of the sea. Seventy percent of the earth is covered by the seas. The average depth of the oceans, the average depth is more than 12,000 feet deep, and the deepest recorded part of the ocean is 36,000 feet. And as of 2019, more than 80% of the ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored, And the vast percentage of that 80% is unexplorable because we don't have the ability to do so. The seas are known for their dangerous storms. Listen to this the largest wave recorded as a result of an earthquake was more than 1,700 feet tall. Waves in the ocean regularly exceed 30 to 40 feet, making travel by sea incredibly dangerous, and it sinks innumerable ships. Every single year. And yet the psalmist tells us that as vast and awesome as the power of the seas are, God stills them. How? With his voice. Why does God do that? Because he is in control of them. They are under His power. The New Testament example of this is found in the Gospel of John. As Jesus and the disciples are on the sea, in the darkness of the wee hours of the morning, the Sea of Galilee is known for great fishing and great danger. As the winds whip up, the seas can become unpassable, and the waves can become much, much larger than these small boats even have the ability to endure and so in danger of being capsized, the disciples in frantic fear wake Jesus and implore him to do something about it. And we read in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? How did Jesus rebuke it? with the spoken word. Why? Because Jesus has power over the seas. As tumultuous as the seas are, as tumultuous as life is for us, God's people, he still tames the storms as he answers our prayers according to his righteousness. The third reminder that we have ...of the power of God is with the nations. 7b concludes, and the tumult of the peoples. You know, it isn't very difficult to look in our world today... ...and understand the amount of turmoil and unrest that exists... ...within the nations of our people today. If you haven't been paying attention... ...you would recognize that even in the prosperous United States of America... We are a nation that is divided. Our nation is in incredible turmoil. At every turn, there is another issue that is causing greater division amongst our people. Apart from the rule of order and law, we would devolve into anarchy. And we would be fending for ourselves, hold up in our houses hoping that the marauders don't come and visit us today. All around our world, the nations are in upheaval. They are in constant turmoil. And the same God who set the mountains in their place and stills the violent storms of the seas is the only one who can bring peace that the nations need. So we are called to pray to the God who answers prayer that He would bring peace in this world through His abiding presence. You see, for the people of God, for the church of God, our understanding of who God is, is to bring us peace. Even in the midst of great difficulty and hardship, the mountains, the seas, the reminder of the peace that God brings to us is to bolster our confidence in God's power to do for us according to To his righteousness, according to his righteous plans and purposes, what it is he desires to do in us and through us. God's creative and sustaining power are a source of praise and are a source of our worship of him. Verse 8, they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in all of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy as we are reminded of the immense, immeasurable power of God, as it brings an abiding peace into our hearts, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we are to be God's people who stand in all of his acts of righteousness. And as we see the dawning and the ending of each day, the beauty that we find in the sunrise and the sunset, they are to be reminders of the power of God, the fact that God sets this in place at the beginning and the ending of each and every day and nothing and no one can ever change the power that exists within this great God of grace, this great God of immense power. Number three in our outline, finally, we conclude with this. Our God of blessing. This God who is the God of all, who answers prayer and saves according to his grace, and pours out blessings upon mankind, this is our God to be praised. The blessing is based upon his presence. Verse 9 and 10. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly, you settle its ridges, you soften it with showers, you bless its growth. Now this is difficult for us to really identify with, but in an incredibly arid region like Jerusalem and Palestine, plentiful rain for an abundant harvest was a sign of God's blessing. The rain prepares the hard clods of the soil And it loosens it, it unleashes its nutrients, and it makes everything grow with great abundance. So the absence of rain in an arid region meant a very poor harvest. And God's blessing and presence would be sought to avoid the hardship brought about by insufficient rain. So in these ancient cultures, most especially, drought, which would lead to famine was understood as a part of God's discipline or the removal of his blessing. So the spiritual application of this is fairly obvious. Rain was a blessing that brought life, and this rain is God's presence amongst his people. Rain is refreshing, it brings renewal, and spiritually speaking, this rain brings God's blessing As a reminder of his presence in our life. So on the other side of that coin, the absence of God's presence brings hardship through drought. Just as the absence of God's presence in our lives would bring about spiritual death, it is probable that when you and I are experiencing hardship, that feels like the famine that comes from drought. It would be our probability that we are feeling separated from God's presence, we're separated from his blessing, we are separated from the abundant life that God desires to make available to his people. So this is our spiritual challenge. Just as rain prepares the soil for an abundant harvest, this God of grace who is to be praised, his abiding presence within us, it prepares our hearts For a harvest of righteousness in and through our lives, even in the midst of drought or famine. You see, when we are experiencing the overflow or the outpouring of God's blessing, it's an easy thing to do to praise God. But when we are experiencing the lack of God's blessing and the way that we would perceive that through hardship and difficulty, we might feel cut off and separated like David often did, but these things that we see in the natural world that God has created are to remind us of his immense power, of his working in us through his abiding presence to bring about his righteous plans on our behalf. His presence brings abundance. Now, his presence brings abundance spiritually, even if circumstantially, we feel like we are in a famine as a result of drought. Verses 11 through 13. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Now, if you and I were to live in an arid region and we understood what the harsh reality of a barren desert wilderness looked like, we would have a very vivid contrast to what it looks like when God has poured out an abundance of rain, and the hillsides are green, and the flowers are blooming, and the cattle are eating, and the the barns are filled with the harvest, and the calves and the animals are, are fat and there is an abundant of physical supply for the coming year. When you look out and you see that lush green meadow, you understand that you are in the midst of a period of great blessing by God. The contrast is, of course, the barren wilderness where there is no lush, there is no green, there is no food, and we feel like we're in drought. We feel like we've been cut off from the hand of God. So, One of these pictures speaks of the great blessing of God through his presence. The other speaks of the absence of God through hot, dry, and miserable conditions. One is physical, the other is spiritual. And so our spiritual lives are going to be picture images of one or the other. A life that is either full of his presence and filled with the lush greenery, of a blooming meadow or one that is dry and barren and lacking the obvious nutrients and and evidence of God's blessing in their lives. Now, here's the point for us in all of this. Our God is a God to be praised because he answers prayer according to his righteousness. He is a God who forgives. He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who invites us into his presence He is a God who makes his throne accessible to us and has adopted us as his sons and daughters. And even when we are in the midst of difficulty and hardship, we still praise a God who has poured out abundant blessing in our life even if it feels like it's barren, even if it feels like it's not as rich and bountiful as it used to be. You know, you and I in America are convinced that we have to have more. And the only way that we are going to really and truly be happy in this world and in this life is with the provision of more. And we have been led to believe that poor people can't praise God and worship God and love God and be content with God. And in the same way, we don't have to have every part of our life in perfect working order the way we would desire it in order to experience the abundance of God's presence. Is God faithful in the hard times? Yes. Is God praiseworthy in the difficult times? Yes. Is God always deserving of our praise and of our worship of Him? Yes, regardless of what we go through. And I believe that this is a reminder to us That even when it's hard, even when it doesn't seem possible, we are to praise the God who has promised his abiding presence with us. And you know what that brings to us? It brings peace. It brings to us a reminder that this God we love and serve is more powerful than we remember or we have experienced him to be. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, please? Father, I pray that we would continue to be in awe of the great God that you are, the way you have revealed yourself to us. Your created world, not just the magnificence of the mountains and the mystery of the seas. Not only do those things speak of your power and of your grace and of your beauty. But Father, most completely you've revealed to us the great God that you are through the cross. And through the cross you have promised that you would be with us to the very end of the age, the very last breath that we will breathe. You're with us every step of the way along life's most difficult journeys and in life's greatest celebrations. And, Father, I pray that our praise of you would be consistent and constant regardless of where we find ourselves. Father, when we go through spiritual turmoil, we need your peace. Your peace is found as we rest in you, the refuge, the anchor, the Savior of our very lives. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me, please?